Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. On today's episode, we're joined by one of the UK's most successful singer-songwriters. He has collaborated with everyone from Kylie Minogue to Bob Dylan and Niall Rogers, and he recently sold out Wembley Arena. We are joined today by the utterly delightful and extremely talented Jack Savaretti. So Jack had a really international upbringing. He moved from London to Switzerland and spent idyllic childhood summers in Portofino, Italy, where his father's family hail from, as well as many a holiday on a remote Bahamian island. It's a rather enviable childhood, I have to say. And it was a slow-burning rise to fame for Jack as a musician. He toured the UK for several years, but all the while his fan base grew and grew, and it was his sixth album, Singing to Strange that finally hit the number one spot and then again his most recent record also topped the charts the sun-soaked and star-studded Europeana which frankly couldn't be a better talking point for the podcast because it was inspired like the name suggests by his European upbringing and life and it was really interesting to hear the story behind that I mean this whole episode in fact is a real love letter to the Mediterranean as well as a few spots farther afield as well but as the nights draw in here in England and it gets a bit more chilly and autumnal I hope this injects a bit of sunshine into your day so let's hear from Jack now. Jack Savaretti, welcome to the Travel Diaries. Thank it you. is so great to see you today. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you so much for having me. I love anything that has to do with travel. So being able to talk about it is almost as good as traveling itself. A little bit of escapism. Amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, travel is obviously something that's fundamental to your life. I've heard yeah. you say before that you have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it at times. I do. Um, I think like all things that are important in your life, you'll always have a love and hate relationship with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, I think my wife definitely feels that about me. So it, it must be true <laughs> love. Um, I think it's that sense that you, I always kind of say there's, there's, there's no sort of greater feeling than leaving home to go on an adventure. And there's no greater feeling than coming home after the adventure. So it's this kind mm. of this paradox um, that you kind of live with as somebody who has to travel like myself, I think most musicians have that kind of sailor pirate mentality and you have to, if you want to like survive in this, in this game, you have to, because so much of your job consists of traveling, of trying to go out there, especially if you're a musician from my generation, which started like 15 years ago. I think now it's different because of like what you and me are doing right here. This would have meant me traveling <laughs> until yeah, recently yeah, yeah, to, go, yeah. to go and do anything, whether it was to do a concert or to do a radio or to do an interview or sometimes even just to meet somebody, you know, you'd have to get on a plane, get on a train, get in a car. And, and that's part of the job. So things are changing, but for my generation of musicians, travel is very much part of the job. Mm. And travel not only is part, was part of your job, but I mean, it's been part of your whole life because you had yeah. a very international childhood. You're born in London to an Italian father and a half German, half Polish mother. So, yeah. I mean, you, you've been imbued with so many different cultures from the start. 
I grew up around accents, which I think is really healthy. I, I do think that's really healthy, and it's kind of something that I try for my kids because it allows you to have patience over a prejudice. Um, it allows you to sort of realize that you what you might grasp as normal isn't normal in another culture. And it's quintessentially, the perfect example for that is whenever I'm speaking Italian to a friend of mine and then I hang up, an English person will say, are you okay? <laughs> what did you, was it, were you getting in a fight? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we were just talking <laughs> about football or anything. Yeah. And, and so sometimes you can walk into a room of people of a certain culture and think, oh, wow, this is a very, you know, fiery. And then you realize that actually you're misinterpreting the whole situation. So growing up around accents and different cultures was something I was very fortunate to experience. And I even experienced that in my education later on, because when we moved to Switzerland, I was assigned, I was put into an American school, which was essentially a very international school in Switzerland. And that was fantastic, being able to walk into a classroom and have seven different nationalities in a class of 10 kids, um, I think was really, it was really important. It allows you to sort of take, take a second before making a judgment on, on something. Yeah, and I imagine then you also have friends all over the world as a result. Yeah, there are very, I mean, I know this sounds a little bit, <laughs> but there's kind of very few countries that if I was to seriously get into trouble, I would be able to sort of pick up a phone and and maybe somebody I haven't heard from in 20 years, but I know that because of our education, also because of the circumstances of international schools, what I love about international schools because of that uh, sort of melting pot of culture is it's very bonding because there isn't really an identity. You're sort of creating, you each have your individual identity mm -hmm. and your individual culture and your family and where you come from, but together you're all different. There isn't like a sort of majority. Um, sometimes there yeah. are, there are, you know, there are certain certain situations where there's more Americans than there are Turkish kids and stuff like that. But essentially, you're all sort of away from home. You're all kind of travelers, and that really unites. Um, so I'm very pro that sort of education system because of how it brings culture to the forefront of your experience growing up. 100%. I completely agree. Um, we're going to go on a journey today, Jack, through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries. We're going to go right back to the very beginning, maybe those school days. Chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. This isn't a place, like as a sort of geographical place. It's, it's, a, it's the experience of being in the car with my father and my mother on holiday in the summer um, in Italy, driving down the Ligurian coast on our way to summer holidays, being a kid that lived in sort of Fulham, was born in London, grew up in Fulham, and arriving to this multicolored building, beautiful sort of towns, all built on the edges of cliffs, on these tiny narrow roads that you think you're going to die at every turn, <laughs> that you're just going to go <laughs> flying off, with sailing boats in the distance, sun glittering, like glistening off the sea, and loud Italian music coming from my dad's car and that sort of anticipation and nerves about meeting new kids, new friends, old family that you haven't seen for over a year, cousins, growing up, having your stories, getting ready to hear theirs. This sort of like just complete attack on the senses um, coming from a pretty, you know, gray London 80s <laughs> childhood to sort of this just a technicolor life, technicolor yeah. Yeah. <laughs> life was sort of switched on every time i arrived and that experience i always remember you come off so we used to fly into genoa airport which hasn't changed at all it's like arriving into a scene of starsky and hutch still if you go today it's like it was something from like the late 70s early 80s <laughs> it's orange the whole building's orange it's amazing and arriving at the airport my father picking us up and then driving down these windy roads and opening the window and the smell the smell that would come in the car 
was unlike anything I'd ever smelt growing up in London. You know, it was fried fish. It was a two-stroke engines from all the Vespers flying by you as they overtake yeah. you in the car and that coming in, hearing the fishermen shouting across the street, holding holding their boxes of shrimp, and just madness, just like I said, awakening of the senses. So that's definitely my first, like when I close my eyes and think of my first, my childhood first memories, that's, that's definitely it. Wow, that's so evocative. And... When you go, have you? Be, do you go back still now? All the time, all the time. And every, do you get that same feeling? Does it take you back every when you time, when, when you wind down the window? One hundred percent. You drive on the motorway from Genoa and you come off in a place called Rapallo. Um, and when you come off the motorway there and you sort of go into the, the town, every time we go through the little um, motorway barrier, whatever you want to call it, and you get into the town, I open the windows and sort of stick my head out like a cocker spaniel and breathe <laughs> it all in. And every time it smells the same. It's incredible oh. every time, except I tell you one time I went last year in the winter and it didn't smell the same. And I thought that was really interesting because so much of that smell is brought by the heat, by the sun battering down on the pavement, battering down on the fish in the sea. So much of what you smell is actually, you know, kind of being steamed up by the sun. Yeah. So it was interesting to go in the winter. I was really, really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that Italy is obviously such a popular destination on the podcast and with my listeners. Oh, that's cool. Um, as somebody who you know knows that that part of it, well, you know Italy so well in yeah. general, but that part in particular, um, it's a it's an area that is pricey in some of the bits to stay in. But I imagine that you know some real special spots that that might help my listeners kind of get under the under the Ligurian coast's uh, skin. You know, Liguria is, dece is dece deceiving in that manner. There are areas that in the last kind of 10, 15 years became changed quite drastically. Um, sort of, I grew up on that coast in the 90s and it wasn't what it is now. Really? Uh, uh, no, not at all. I mean, it was always nice. It was, it, it was never sort of a beaten down place. It was always, I mean, it's a quite, the north of Italy is a, is a wealthy part of Italy. It's, it's good quality of life. There was never sort of poverty but it wasn't, you know, when I grew up, there was a fruit vendor. Now there's a Chanel shop. That kind of, that has happened. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. That has happened. But funnily enough, since COVID, um, and this sounds a bit, I don't know how to put this in, and this sounds a bit lighthearted and I'm not looking over this lightly, but it's kind of saved a lot of these kind of towns in the sense that a lot of the big brands and everything left had to leave because wow. of COVID and because the tourism changed. And even when when we came out of lockdown, what, what I've noticed that's really amazing is a lot of every country had a different experience. But I don't know if you remember in lockdown when they're like, you can travel. Everybody went, yay, but you can't leave your country. And everybody went, ah, oh, not Italians. <laughs> they were like, actually, that's pretty cool. We, we've got a lot to do here, you know, between yeah. the mountains and the sea. So Italians fell in love again with Italy. And that's what's been really lovely. Italians have gone back to these what were really oversaturated touristic destinations and and that has really revitalized um a lot of the local restaurants the local shops because that's what italians want italians aren't going to go to the seaside to go to a chained restaurant or to go to shopping for chained clothes they, they do that in the cities that's what the cities are built around in italy they go to the seaside for fresh quality local experiences also because they're also tied in with their families like it's it's very rare that an Italian will go to a seaside place that they haven't had for generations or that their grand mm -hmm. you know that that isn't linked to their heritage. 
So that's been really nice to see. It's kind of yeah. It this summer was a bit of a shock though because you know the gates were open this summer. Like everybody made up for the last three years, and I have seen a little bit of that oversaturated touristic boom come back. But um, I think that is just kind of like you know doors opening at a venue. Everybody just rushed in after <laughs> having been locked out for so long. But I think when that calms down a bit, I I do think the coastline of Italy is looking really good. Um, it, it's it's looking like it's being saved a bit in that in that respect. So hopefully so it'll stop now, being so pricey. Yeah, and and now when we go, we know to just look out for the the lo- wherever the locals are eating. One hundred percent. I mean, and this is something I have this talk with my wife a lot because my wife um, is is English, and ambiance and atmosphere mean a lot to her. And that's not always the right way to approach Italian restaurants and Italian food because Italians like to see their food, <laughs> um, so they will prioritize good food over good lighting. And this is an yeah. argument. <laughs> so don't, <laughs> don't be don't be bamboozled by like, oh wow, what a lovely, you know. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Um, go for the place where you hear Italian coming out of. Like that's that's the only advice to do in Italy. Like if you hear people speaking Italian sitting at the restaurant. It will be good because Italians, if there's one thing they just don't settle for, is bad food. You can't get away with tricks of, you know, atmosphere, lighting, and music. No, if the food is bad, people won't go. Mm, great, great tip. Oh, it's making me think of Italian food. Me too. Just nothing <laughs> better. Quite <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to chapter two. And that is the first place that you fell in love with, Jack. The first place I fell in love with is a beautiful Mediterranean. I mean, there is a lot of Mediterranean is kind of, you'll, you'll hear that a lot, is a beautiful island in the Mediterranean called Formentera, which is um, just next to Ibiza. You can only get to it by boat, which already, I have a very romantic idea about islands. I grew up, like my father, we were both obsessed with basically ending our lives on a remote desert island. And um, <laughs> and this is not ending our lives, but, you know, seeing our days out, so to speak. Yeah. I don't know if I said the right expression. Um, <laughs> and, um, and uh, yeah, I went to Formentera as a kid with my mother-in-law um, and a friend of hers, but only for the day. It was like a day tripping thing you could do. If you'd go to Ibiza and you'd go on a boat to, to Formentera for lunch. My parents used to go a lot in the 70s when it was a real sort of hippie cove, so to speak. And they used mm-hmm. to do mud baths and, and I've got all these great photos of them with like sort of leather bands around their head, covered in mud, head to toe. It Amazing. was a very, very cool place. And then a couple of years back, um, my who's my wife, Gemma, now when we were dating, we had just started dating and we wanted to do our first trip together alone. And we had just seen this amazing film called Lucia y el Sexo, Sex and Lucia. It was a beautiful Spanish film. And we, the whole film is based in Formentera. And it's this magic isla, this magic island that they speak of with all of these different mysteries and secrets. And there's just a lot of magic to it. And we thought, let's go to Formentera. I've always really wanted to discover it. And we showed up at night, which was really interesting. I love showing up to a place at night because you get the excitement of waking up and seeing where you are. So we showed mm-hmm. up and we got this tiny little like one-bedroom bungalow. And I, we got there and I could hear the sea, but I wasn't aware how close the sea was. I could hear it. We got in late, fell asleep, woke up the next morning. And I walked out the door and the smell and the sounds were just something I had never experienced before. Because it's Mediterranean, but it's almost got a Caribbean feel to it because of how sort of isolated it is from chaos, from traffic and all that. So it was just unspoiled, unspoiled, very unspoiled. And so that's when I fell in love with an island that we've been going back to for the last 15 years ever since. Oh, how glorious. So you go back regularly. Yeah, do you? we have a fam I, I my my father and I got a bought a house t- together there. And so it was just a very, very special place for us, yeah. 
So would you recommend that people go on holiday to Formentera or or would you or would you say that it's a place that you would do like Ibiza and Formentera like a jewel center type thing? No, I think if you go to Formentera, a lot of people make the mistake of going for like two days and you you won't understand Formentera in two days. You sort of won't see the point of it. And and my father always used to say something very clever about Formentera, very true. He used to say, you either go once or you'll go for the rest of your life. Um, mm-hmm. It's a place that you either get it or you don't get it. <laughs> in other words, you either fall in love with it or it's not your thing. I think if you go for two days, it's it's hard to fall in love with anybody in two days. <laughs> it yeah, takes time. so true. So you got yeah. you got to give it at least three. <laughs> no, at least <laughs> at least like I would go if you can for a week, but if you can prolong it as much as possible, that's when you really realize the majesty of of Formentera. And not everywhere is like that. There are some places you go to that you know it's love at first sight. Don't get me wrong, but Formentera to really understand the spirit of it, the soul of it, and the, and how special it is. It's not superficial. Formentera doesn't woo you with superficiality and, wow, what a beautiful building or how lovely the weather, what a great what a great club scene and all that kind of stuff. It's more just you'll see there's a vibe, there's a sort of a rhythm to life and a, an energy that, that takes on, that people take on when they're there. You'll I find guess that follows there. on from its hippie roots, totally, right? Totally, 100%, 100%. Yeah. So it's got that kind of personality to it. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'd love to go. Um, been to Ibiza, but never took that that ferry over. In the summer, they the ferries are quite busy, aren't they? Over to Formentera in the day, and 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 I think I'd like to go maybe out of season. Like slightly. I agree. I think there's too many ferries. I mean, I think there should be a bit of a sort of they should put the. I mean, it's easy for me to say. I don't. I'm not a local who depends on the economy of the tourism, but I can understand why why they have it. But it is a bit of a shame because they are starting to be quite crazy, and and that has ruined a lot of the coastline in Italy. Uh, the sort of the day trippers. Um, I'm not sure how great the day trippers actually are for the economy because they don't really, you know, use what the locals have set up when it comes to restaurants or hotels or hospitality. They don't really Mm -hmm. engage with that if they're day tripping. So I understand it, but uh, I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with day trippers as well anyway (laughs) because you're not really giving anything back. You're just kind of coming, looking, and leaving. And I think that's a bit – I don't think that's the way to travel. I think when you go somewhere, you have to give. You have to, yeah, you so have to, we book you know, our week in Formentera. Yeah, book your week. That's, in that's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> so chapter three is the place where you learned the most about yourself. I think it's right here where I am right now and where I live in Oxfordshire. Um, moving out here, I mean, I can't believe that I live in where I live. <laughs> it kind of, I mean, in one respect, I can't believe how lucky I am. And in another respect, I can't believe what I'm doing here because I'm a fish out of water. <laughs> I'm, very, <laughs> I'm very much a, a fish out of water. Uh, because, you're a, because you're a city guy in, in your heart or, or in what way? I think because I'm someone who I like four seasons. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I like to see blue skies. I'm not crazy about mud. Um, <laughs> but I live in the middle of the English countryside. And it's so romantic, but it does knock you sideways with the weather sometimes. If you're not used to it, if you're somebody with Mediterranean heritage, you feel it. You really do feel it. Every day, you kind of, I kind of open my eye really slowly, looking out the window going, please, oh, no. <laughs> Again. And we have four dogs, so that means a lot of walking outside. And, you know, I, I do love, as, the, as my Scandinavian friends say, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. But it's mm-hmm. still, you know... It can kick you sideways if you're not used to it. But I've learned a lot about myself because I think when you are in somewhere that isn't that that does put you a little bit out of your comfort zone, you learn a lot about yourself. 
you know you of course and that's something i really i think it's why i stay i think subconsciously it's why i love being here is because every day as much as i might moan and groan and my wife can't stand it because she's english and for, for my this, like she always says to me this is just normal weather i i argue that it isn't <laughs> i've lived in four different countries in my life and i'm like this is not normal weather. <laughs> there's a reason everywhere in the world talks about english weather <laughs> yeah. because it's not normal um <laughs> And so she doesn't understand my my struggle, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's because of that that every day I have to dig a little deeper and and realize something about myself that I otherwise wouldn't know. And I'm joking. I mean, I absolutely love it. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, it's just the weather that, that gets me down. But I've learned a lot about, like I said, living in a place where I feel that I physically wasn't designed to live in. I, mm-hmm. You know, I really feel it. I feel, I feel that I feel that about yeah. the English weather too, frankly. Yeah. I think a lot of us do. Yeah, but it's interesting because some don't. And especially living out here where the majority of my friends are English, they love it. They almost embrace it. And I envy them because I've tried. I've tried <laughs> to, you know, really this, you know, really get involved and, you know, get the clothing, get the gear and <laughs> go do the long walks. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's just not in my it's just not in my blood. It's, just they, it's they. the same way they feel when I take them to sit, you know, in the sun for two hours in the Mediterranean in the shade of an olive tree talking nonsense. They get bored. So it's the same thing. It's just different cultures, I guess. Different strokes for different folks. Indeed. I, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you actually spent the majority of your childhood in, in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, and that was in Lugano? In Lugano, the south of Switzerland, which was um, the Italian part of Switzerland. Um, mm. Very beautiful part of the world. And um, I was really interested to read that because one of my favorite travel memories that I've ever had was going to a different Italian part of Switzerland um, on Lake Maggiore Amazing. up in in um, Ascona. Yeah, I grew up in Ascona in summer. My, my, my granny always used to take us to Ascona for summer. Beautiful Did hotel she? there. I can't remember what it's called. It's lovely. You we, swim in the lake. Eden it's Rock. Beautiful. Maybe. Eden Rock. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's where exactly, we stayed. That's where, yeah. that's where, exactly. Yeah. Eden. Yeah. That's where we used to stay. Isn't it a magical place? And I just absolutely fell in love with the juxtaposition of Italian and Swiss culture. You know, the the kind of Swiss efficiency and slickness with like the Italian heart. And, and it's just such a special blend. Totally. And the, I mean, the beauty, the be- of course. The, but the buildings are very Italian. It was Italy at some point, you know, at some it was all that all those regions were sort of shifting hands over the past sort of hundreds of years but it definitely has it i i I do feel though for the swiss italians because the swiss consider them italians and the italians consider them swiss they're they're kind of the the unwanted like they don't really know where to go nobody sort of welcomes them with open arms i do feel for them i mean i would never claim to be swiss but i am eternally grateful to have been my not just me but my family um were welcomed open-armed in Switzerland and we just had the most amazing I was so fortunate to grow up in a place like that which is why I left London with my kids because I you know I just wanted them to have there's a lot to be said about growing up within nature um and to really ignite your imagination I remember when my daughter was about three I gave her this sort of beautiful frozen wand that I had spent like weeks finding while I was on tour and and I gave it to it three years old and it, it basically made coffee it was so advanced this thing I don't know it did everything and I gave it <laughs> yeah. to her and she goes it's the wrong wand and I was like okay we got to get out of London like this isn't this isn't going to fly anymore like you have all your life to think you've got the wrong wand but not at three years old like this isn't yeah. cool and I, I'd love to say I spoil it I don't this was just a 
a result of being around somewhere that was full of stimulants all the time and full of sort of information about what is good and what isn't, what's better, what you want, you need this, you need that. You know, every time you stepped out the door, there was something being sort of bombarded in her face. And I remember we moved to the countryside and like within a week, she was outside playing with a stick. And I know that sounds like a sort of cliche. It actually happened. Like I saw it with my own eyes and I was like, that's why we're here. And that's what happened to me. I grew up in London and I left when I was about seven or eight. And I remember showing up to this, we had this little bungalow and on top of a mountain in a little village called Corona in, near Lugano and thinking, what are we going to do here? I mean, I was a London city kid. And within sort of a week of being there, I was riding bikes around the village with the neighbors and, and building tree houses and experiencing this amazing new life. Um, so I'm eternally grateful mm. for my parents for, 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 for giving us that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. And uh, of course, I mean, you have toured the world, um, several times over. And I, I just think that your journey to Wembley, essentially, <laughs> like the, the biggest <laughs> venues yeah. is, is, is a, an interesting one. And one that maybe people wouldn't necessarily know in the sense that you really have, paid your dues on the gigging <laughs> gigging circuit from that. kind of pubs and cafes to you know and working your way up and to, yeah. in in that kind of gradual build I mean do you enjoy touring did you enjoy that slog I mean I look back on it with amazing fondness and I wish I could go back and tell that guy don't worry it's all going to work out because I can tell you he did not think it was going to work out for most of those tours and most of those shows i think it was because at a very early stage of my career i realized that the music industry could be cold could really lock you out and if you're not invited and the thing that infuriated me was that if you weren't invited to the party you just couldn't do what you loved and that just didn't go down i just wasn't going to accept that i wasn't going to accept that i couldn't do what i love to do and get better at it because 20 people there's basically 20 people in the industry who decide whether you get a record deal or not you know it's, it's yeah. about that um, and at the time, again, things have changed. We didn't have streaming. We didn't have, you know, we barely had MySpace. So it was different. That that stuff mattered. Like, you, you you know, having a label behind you, whether it was a massive label or an indie label, it mattered. You got support. And yep. I didn't have that. And once you got the support, half of them lost their jobs and another batch came in. Exactly. And, uh, I mean, look, <laughs> getting, getting signed cards. didn't mean you had made it at all. But not mm. getting signed really meant you hadn't made it. And I, was, <laughs> yeah. and I wasn't getting signed. I wasn't getting any... I wasn't being invited to the party. And so my manager and I, um, who's one of my closest friends and is still with me, this is about 16 years ago, we just decided, screw that. We're going to go and do our own thing. Let's get in a car and drive up and down the country and just start playing as many shows as we can. And we, you know, we're musicians. We forget that that's what we're supposed to do. You get so caught up in the industry, uh, of, uh, you know, the music business, the biggest oxymoron there is. And then you, you forget that actually like, we're here to make music. <laughs> We're not here to do business. Like, let the business come later, but let's go out and make music. And so that's what we did. And it yeah. took a long time for that music yeah. to turn into a business. <laughs> I can tell you that <laughs> much. But it did. It did. In the end, it finally... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So chapter four then, your all-time favorite destination, where would you pick? I think my all-time favorite destination has to be Portofino. <laughs> Portofino ah. is um, those journeys I was talking about with my father, driving through the Ligurian streets. The destination at the end of that experience was always Portofino. I was baptized there. My grandmother hid in the mountains during the war. My grandfather, who was the head of the partisans who liberated the region from fascism, used to climb towards the mountains of Portofino in the back and signal the RAF with mirrors where the German positions were. Uh, so it was. A, it's a deeply rooted in my family. My yeah. aunt is buried there. Um, it, it's very deeply rooted in our family. And I tell you, the more I travel the world, the more I realize how beautiful Portofino is, <laughs> um, if that makes any sense. The yeah. more I do sort of 12-hour journeys to travel the world, don't get me wrong, the world is a magnificent place, but it's really hard every time I get there to go, eh, Portofino is more beautiful. I have to stop myself from doing that. <laughs> Isn't that lovely, though? A place that's kind of part of you and your DNA is somewhere that you feel can't be beaten. Well, I think that's very much my bias. I think that does have a lot to do with my love for a, it, for a sure. lot. Of, a lot of people love Portofino, though. Yes. I mean, even non-Italians. That so. is very true. It it is majestic. And again, I'm very anti-day trippers. But if you can uh, drop in, but if you can stay, and Portofino is not a place to stay for a week. That not, I, I, it's different. Um, especially if you don't know people, do not do that. But a lovely romantic weekend or even an overnight stay where you just get to experience Portofino at night. Because in the day, it is a bit of a day trip, a destination. But at six o'clock, everybody leaves. And you start mm-hmm. getting the sense of what Portofino really is. And you start going to the restaurants and hearing the dialect and the Ligurian dialect, but the Portofino dialect especially. And you just, all the restaurateurs have known each other since childhood. It's a real local place you know i go back there now every year pretty much and every time i go 80 percent of the 
you know, ladies working at the shoe shop or working in the local fruit shop will cry every time they see me because they remember me from when oh, I was one years old. You know, I was baptized in the church. That's so the lovely. And when I take my children, they cry when they meet my children every year. It's like this amazing, it's like, for me, it's like the neighborhood where I grew up, which sounds weird, but being somebody who moved around a lot, I never had that. I never had that mm -hmm. neighborhood upbringing that, you know, you get when you stick in a place for your child that I moved. Um, but Portofino was a certainty every year. Whatever happened every year, we were there for almost one, one and a half months. That's where I spent all of my summers growing up from, from birth um, until I was about 16. And then Ugh. when my parents divorced, it got more complicated. But that was pretty much my childhood summers were always in Portofino. So, I'm very jealous. That's an amazing place to spend a childhood summer. It is. What, what, would you, what would you get up to when you were there? Well, I was obsessed with boats. And from a very young age, I wanted to work on boats. Uh, and it's still sort of an itch I haven't scratched. Um, but there's, if you go to Portofino, if you've been to Portofino, you'll know this. There's a, if, you're, if you're looking out at sea from the square, on the left, there's a restaurant and a bar. And in front of it, there's a little blue and white boat, rowboat, called the Profeta, the Prophet. It's still there. It's been there since I was born. And it belongs to a guy called Tigre, Tiger, who is like mm -hmm. the top dog of Portofino, running the boats, the fishing and all that. He's a wonderful yeah. man. We used to be terrified him of him as, as kids, but now he's divine. <clears throat> and I used to steal this boat um, from the age of seven. And it was really interesting because my, my son is seven now. And I can't believe now that I look at him, because we were in Portofino this summer and I was explaining this to him how young I was when I was doing this. And there's all these little boats in Portofino, besides the yachts, there's all these little day-tripper boats. So whenever they used, people used to come back, you've got to go out and get them. That's what Tigre did. That's what this boat was for. But I was much quicker than him because I was younger and everything. So I would get this boat and I would go and get all the people off their boats, wash the, help mm -hmm. them wash their, clean their boats, and then bring them, yeah. bring them back to shore. And that was like my... That was kind of my my jam. That's what I love to do. <laughs> and I used to do it all morning because that's when everybody was yeah. going out. And then I'd go out with friends uh, on a little boat or go somewhere to the, to the rock swimming. And I'd come back early because I knew the boats were coming back in and I wanted to go pick them up. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah, was very so, so you're a water baby, basically. I'm very happy at sea. And I say that I'm very happy in the med. I get a little bit terrified in, in oceans, <laughs> but I feel very at home in, in the Med. Yeah, And it's lovely and sheltered in Portofino as well, One, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yeah. why the bay survived, um, because it's this incredibly natural sort of cove in a weird way. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. Absolutely. Beautiful. I have an amazing memory from there when uh, I was staying somewhere further along in the Cinque Terre and we took a water taxi to, to be uh, day tripper <laughs> to Portofino and the a big um, pod of dolphins just started oh. following our water taxi the whole way there yeah, and majestic. that's just something you don't think about necessarily in Europe you know but it just it felt so exciting and so the med unfortunately I mean, yeah. is not doing well right? well it's recovered a lot because of COVID um, when it comes to the fish population but dolphins are a regular sighting um, you get a lot of, I mean, Portofino means the port of dolphins that, that a lot of people argue that if it actually means that, or if it just means the end, but, um, cause it's oh, the right. end of the road, um, right. but you, you will, you will see the dolphin as a symbol on a lot of stuff around Portofino mm -hmm. and it's a very clean bay. It's famously clean. The water is incredibly clean. Um, and so that attracts the dolphins as well, but it's beautiful. And there are some beautiful places, like you said, Cinque Terre are stunning. And there's another place in between, um, Portofino and Camogli, there's a lovely little um, old convent you can go to called San Fruttuoso, and there's a beautiful statue of Christ underneath the water. 
that if you swim, his hand is at seven meters. I've only been able to touch his hand, but scuba, you, the scuba people can go down to his feet and he's got all these bracelets that people have put. It's quite, a, it's quite an wow. impressive thing to see a statue of Christ looking up at you at the yeah. bottom of the sea. It's a little, it can throw you. Um, but I took my kids to, to see it this summer and my daughter was able to touch touch his hand. Oh, wow. I bet and that will be an unforgettable memory. It, it really is. It's, it's an experience. Oh, brilliant. So your album, latest album, number one album, I should say, uh, Europeana, was really, you know, it's, it's wonderful that we're speaking so much about your passion and your love for Europe because, I mean, this album was directly inspired by your travels, right? One hundred percent. It was direct. It was more than my travels. My my and your life, I guess. Yeah, my life. Yeah, yeah. My my melancholy yeah. for sort of my childhood and my adolescence, my teenage years, my sort of association with freedom and excitement and kind of not breaking rules, but like you know, I, I always it's it, it it goes from like the first time I ever stayed up too late with my parents and watched them dance on tables and stuff like that, and for me falling asleep under the table. It goes from that time of like Julio Iglesias, Gypsy King, Sarge Gansberg, Patti Pravas, to my own lived teenage experiences of backpacking across Europe with listening to Phoenix and Daft Punk and and getting that sort of experience. So. It was during lockdown, I, I I just felt so bad. It broke my heart not being able to give my kids these experiences that I had that I tried to kind of relive them here. Like we turned we turned um, the house into Portofino one night. We we did we did Spanish nights, we did French nights, we did all these things where we were listening to all this kind of music. We had this thing called Fabulous Friday. And we would every Friday we would take we would do a trip we would go to some destination and the whole week we talk about it what are we going to eat what are we going to wear what are we going to listen to so it was like it was like a bit of a goal oh my god i wish i'd been at your house it was really so fun, fun. <laughs> it was really really fun we have it all photo documented nobody will ever see this photo well but it was pretty wild also because i don't know how politically correct it is now for an italian family to dress in flamenco gear <laughs> i don't want to upset anybody but we had a great time and really embraced all these different cultures and while I was doing that, I realized there's a real thread through all this music. There is a thread from Julio Iglesias to Daft Punk. There is a thread from uh, Sarge Gansberg to Phoenix, uh, Georgia Moroder, and all these guys. Like, there's a real, there's something in there. And I think people have kind of overlooked the fabulousness of European music. Sometimes European music gets kind of this, not ridicule, but it always gets associated with bit things that are a bit cheap sometimes a bit sort or cheesy of cheesy yeah exactly yeah and i just think that's wrong um and you know i wanted to celebrate it and and it was amazing how even my prejudice changed i grew up not liking abba but then when when indulging into this world of european music abba blew my mind i started really listening to abba from also from a different age not trying to be cool not trying to be you know and just really listening to the music and it's incredible um, and yeah. so that was kind of my experience during lockdown was listening to Julio Iglesias and Abba and Gypsy King and Phoenix, all these guys and realizing the, the magic that these guys had. And so I wanted to celebrate that. And that's what Europeana, essentially it was the soundtrack for the perfect holiday we couldn't go on. That's basically what I tried to do. Such an amazing idea, such a cool concept. And in your kind of deep diving into these different sounds from different countries, different cultures, different artists, was there one whose cultural identity you found most curious, most interesting? That's a great question. I think I've always had a fascination with Spain. Um, and I think listening to the 
to the to, to various music. Um, there's another singer called Juan Manuel Serrat who has a song called Mediterraneo, which is to me one of the most beautiful songs in the world. About he's like, it's not my fault if I was born in the Mediterranean. Basically, is the whole song. What am I supposed to do if these are the things I love? And I just love this kind of Italians share this too. I, I'm so fascinated by French, Spanish, and Italian culture that is so in love with the Mediterranean. When you hear in the music, like in, in Italy, there's a great singer called Lucio Dalla, um, who has a song called Caruso, dedicated to the singer, um, which is one of the most beautiful songs in the world. And again, the whole thing is based around his love for the Mediterranean. And he almost, it's almost a love letter to the, to the wake of a speedboat driving through this kind of like oil-like black sea at night towards the moonlight. Like it's these images that if you're Mediterranean and if you've grown up there as a kid and you've sat on the rocks alone, either heartbroken or fighting with your parents or just having a moment or smoking your first cigarette or doing whatever it is, you've seen that, you've lived that, you've, you've felt the power of that image. It's as powerful as an image of, you know, urban life or the chaos of a city for somebody who grew up in downtown New York or in London. These, these images really stay with you. And there's a reason for it because it is just magnificent. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to have that lived experience where it sort of ingrains itself in your brain, you should celebrate it. You should sing love songs about it. Um, and and that's kind of what I got from listening to all of this music. What it's okay, Such a passion. Totally, yeah. it's okay to be passionate about a place, and uh, I can safely say I am. So it was lovely to hear so much music about that. And of course, you got to work with the legendary Nile Rodgers on this record, which I imagine for any artist is a kind of real bucket list experience. It's very cool. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, he brought the cool to the whole situation, and he's the godfather of Europeana, and that's that's what I told him, and he liked he liked that title a lot. Um, but <laughs> I basically said, you know, I'd love to have you on this, and it was like a real stamp of approval because I did get scared about making an album called Europeana while Brexit was going on, and a lot of people yeah, said, "Yeah, I was going to ask you, was that was there uh, a motivation, kind of no. politically in any way?" No, no, no. It's this. A lot of people said, "Is this political?" Before people heard the album, they were like, "Is this?" going to be a political album and i was like absolutely not it's a cultural album it's celebrating yeah. culture it's i'm not getting into politics also right. because i wouldn't necessarily celebrate european politics but i will <laughs> definitely celebrate european culture um mm -hmm. and they're two very different things um mm -hmm. so i that's what i was trying to do but i did have my you know i did get cold feet i did get scared and a lot of people were like you're mad to do this um Anyway, we did it, Only the Brave. And having Nile as a part of it was a lot of what gave me that courage to sort of see it through. Because when I explained to him the concept, and I explained to him why he was relevant, because he changed European music. He came to Europe in the late 60s, early 70s. And he was a musical director in discotheques at the time, they were called. Actually, one of them very famously near Portofino. Um, really? Yeah, which my father went to. And my father saw him perform. Um, he was doing the musical directing for um, amazing singers in Italy called Patti Bravo. And then he went to France. And then he went to Germany, where later he produced Bob, um, David Bowie, lived in Berlin for a long time. So he had a real impact. Um, he worked with Giorgio Moroder and all that. He had a real yeah. impact of bringing this disco, funk, soul sound to Europe. And he educated European musicians on that. And suddenly you hear, with upon his arrival, this infiltrating European popular culture. But what's different is that the. The motivation behind it is, is the aspiration behind it in Europe was different to America. In America, it was counterculture. It was illegal. It was something you would get at gay clubs that were completely illegal in New York and in Chicago. It was this real 
underground movement. That's what disco was. And you hear it in American disco because most of the lyrics are quite repetitive. It's like a message. You know, it's, it's something that you want. It's kind of a cry for change. In Europe, it wasn't that at all. It was glamour. It was real luxury. And it was this kind of frivolous, sort of luxurious music. Yeah. And so they combined that disco sound. But above it, they put these really romantic, melodic songs. So it kind of went like the two worlds cr- collided. And, and that's Europeana in a nutshell is where <laughs> that sort of American sound was met with European tradition of melody, songwriting, and melancholy, <laughs> essentially. And when yeah. those two worlds collide, you get what I call Europeana. That's so fascinating. And so I'm going to go back and listen again now to the <laughs> album with that context. And really like, it's because it's one that I think that you can really, uh, you can enjoy it on a kind of top, level but then it's totally. it's one that you can really get deep into as well yeah that was a record that was a choice i still don't know if i should have just gone more i did wa- i did want it to be accessible i did want to people to understand i didn't want it to be gimmicky either i didn't want it to be too pastiche so i i wanted it to be relevant to today um but i do sometimes have regrets that i didn't just go full pastiche full, full like <laughs> over the top you know and make bonus a bonus track yeah, bonus exactly. track <laughs> well actually you say that the bonus tracks are a little bit like that <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's pause there and move on to chapter 5 which is your hidden gem a place that you love that maybe my listeners wouldn't know so much about it's a remote we're going to leave Europe here we're going to leave the Mediterranean um it's okay. a remote island called Pierre Island it used to belong to a pirate called Pierre um in the Bahamas um it's right oh. next to a place called Harbor Island which is one of the most beautiful places which has changed again dramatically from when I went 20 years ago but my father had a friend um who basically I won't say names but he took this island from somebody who was running for VP in America, vice president. Um, at a, this is about 20, 25 years ago, so you can do... <laughs> you, do the maths, yeah. Work backwards in my head. <laughs> um, and let's just say having an island in the Bahamas probably wasn't a good look. Um, so he got rid of it very quickly. And this, this person who my father knew took it over, but it was completely derelict, completely derelict. It was like what used to be a lovely sort of island left abandoned, essentially. Um, so it had like a tennis court on it, but with, you know, it had been eaten up by the jungle, by all the weeds yeah. and everything. And it had this lovely little, uh, wood cabin and this little rock house. It was all very tiny, but it was no electricity. It was on a generator and no running water where we collected. There was like a well water system. And my father and this, one of his best friends, they basically took it over for about 10 years. And, no way. and it was wild. And we used to go for like a month every year, no phone signal. Um, there was just a radio that you could connect. You, if there was emergencies, you could talk to this thing called the Bohingi, which was this ferry that goes from NASA to Harbor Island. Um, and that was the only, so if you had a trouble, that was the only way we could get help was through a walkie talkie. Um, wow. and it was wild and it was such a weird thing for my father to do. It was a real example of his eccentricity. And like I said before, his desire to finish his days on a remote desert island. Yeah. This was as close yeah. as he got. It was nuts. Yeah. And we experienced hurricanes. We experienced tw- twisters. I mean, I saw a twister coming straight for the island and it would have cracked the island in half. And I don't know if I would have been here, but luckily it just sort of moved, dispersed just before hitting. A lot of twisters, they create get created at sea. And then when they hit land, mm-hmm. they kind of disperse, luckily. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what happened to us. But I can tell you, you know, on one side you had, 
this amazing gulf of one side of the island, you had this amazing gulf where you saw Harbour Island. On the other side of the island, the next stop was Ireland. <laughs> it was the really? Atlantic Ocean. Oh, right, yeah, it right. Was wild. It was kind of the end of the Bahamas yeah. there. So one side was really dramatic. Like, I didn't like swimming there. It was quite scary. And the other side was this beautiful gulf. And it's like the turquoise sea you picture when you think of the Bahamas. But, you know, filled with sharks, <sighs> filled with barracudas. Amazing snorkeling. And- yeah, yeah. You've got to be, you've got to... You got to be up for it though. Like, you know, nothing shiny on, you know, it, there's a wildlife. There's a real wildlife. It's not the Mediterranean. It's magic. That's why it is magic. Um, mm-hmm. So I highly recommend that part of the world to anybody who who has a, a, a curiosity for marine biology and just, just seeing what life underwater really is without being in super deep waters because you, you get this life, you get this wildlife in very shallow waters. <clears throat> so it's quite amazing because the visibility is nuts. Um, it, it's it's like being in a swimming pool with sea turtles or dolphins, or if you're not lucky, sharks and or barracudas. Mm-hmm. But even if you are mm-hmm. lucky, if that's what you want to see, because you get reef sharks, which are very beautiful. But you know, if if you if, if you take anything from the reef, they don't like that. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> yeah. you see a lot of the sort of conch fishermen. Conch is the sort of speciality there, which is just this big shell where they take the meat out of. But you see all the local guys like sometimes running on the reef away from sharks because they're taking cut. So it's an incredible, it's a beautiful part of the world. Um, but this was a real hidden gem. It wasn't Yeah, mainstream. it sounds like an incredible hidden gem. Is yeah. it a place that's still hidden? Like it's still, is, is it's what's going sale. on on that island I, now? I think oh, it's really? for sale. It's been for sale. Oh God, uh, aren't you tempted? No, I don't. I'm not, we're not doing that well. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, very, it's nowhere near. But also it was like, it's somewhere for somebody, there was nothing there. It was a rock. It was a floating rock. Like it, there was, like I said, there was a generator. You know, at seven when the sun set, we would do one hour of generators to cook and maybe watch some football or some TV, and then zoop, we'd all go down. One of us would go down with a flashlight. It was pretty wild, and turn the generator off. And we only had walkie-talkies for each other because it was two little houses. And we'd say, "I'm going to do the generator," and you turn the generator off. And until the morning, it was just flashlights. So it was wild, you know. And after a hurricane, you'd get rats the size of cats. We got, what, we got what an unusual experience amazing. to have. We got rats, so so many rats one year after a hurricane that we had to get this 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 wonderful guy came. He was Haitian, and he came to clear the rats. He came with a giant snake, and yeah, I, I, this is a true story. He came with a giant snake, put and released it on one side of this island, which was just like really overgrown jungle. And we had two dogs, Jack and Jill. And he just said, just make sure the dogs stay away from from him. But he'll eat all the rats for you. And about two weeks later, this guy came back and the snake was twice the size. Like he had eaten, I don't know how much he had eaten, but he was like, oh my he was God. fat. Like this, the snake was fat. Like he had just feasting on giant feasting rats. Feasting on giant rats, but it worked. Well, <laughs> it worked. It's a natural way to sort exactly. that out. <laughs> it really was. And very, very effective too. Well, if uh, rats aside, if Jack has inspired you listeners to visit the Bahamas, don't forget to check out my beautiful Bahamas destination special with India Hicks. Well, India, that's that's where she lives, Harbour Island. In Harbour Island, yeah. yeah. Because I used to play ping pong with um, her husband at the time. There was this place called Harvey's Bar um, where there was a ping pong table and all sorts of characters came in. And it was fabulous because we were like, I was like 14 at the time, but you'd get these very sort of, these gentlemen with like, you know, uh, India Hicks's husband being one with like a blue double-breasted blazer and gold buttons, but no shoes. You know, it was very sort of old school, but yeah, yeah. I love the Bahamas. It's Harbor Island is, is magic. 
What an amazing hidden gem. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Well, a complete contrast to that, our penultimate chapter of your travel diaries, Jack, is your worst travel experience, chapter seven. Well, my worst travel experience has nothing to do with the place because I've been twice and I'm actually fascinated with this part of the world and this place. And it was in Abu Dhabi. And the reason it was so bad was because my wife and I and my children had had a very long winter. It had been very, it had been a tough time for various reasons. And we were sort of gifted by an amazing hotel chain, which I will not say the most incredible five days to go on holiday because I had done some event for them and everything. Mm -hmm. And we were so excited and it was January or February. And so they said, you can choose anywhere in the world and we'll give you five days. We had five days. We landed and there was a sandstorm for five days. A sandstorm. Yeah. Not, a, not, not, not rain, not a sandstorm. Where literally, if you put your hand, if you stretched your arm out, you couldn't see your hand. Now, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Abu Dhabi, but there's, it's quite hard to find anything to do in a sandstorm. Um, it was, yeah. But there's a lot of sand, I there's suppose. There's a lot well, of sand. <laughs> I mean, it was like a bad, bad joke. I mean, the kids, my wife basically spent five days in a hotel crying. And um, oh. I, me and the kids braved it and we went swimming every day in the sandstorm. And it was oh really God. like being in Star Wars or Lawrence of Arabia. Like it was incredible. It was proper. Like you had to, you really, it hurt. I mean, luckily yeah. the last, the last day, the last day we saw blue skies in the morning before going to the airport. I mean, it was so. Oh, that's so gutting as well. When it, when the, that weather breaks, when you're like on your very last day. That always seems to be the way if you have bad weather on a trip. It's like the last day. It was it was one of those where the last day, the, the heavens opened and the sun shined and it was just beautiful and we had to leave. <laughs> we had oh. to go. I mean, it I guess it's a reason bad. to go back. It's definitely, and I've been before. I've actually, I went before with my father for a business trip when I was a kid and I absolutely loved it and I'm fascinated with it. It's an incredible part of the world. And um, especially if you go visit the old sort of pearl, like the harbors where they used to collect pearls and everything, it's mm. it, the old fishermen's. It's it's interesting. The Dow boats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's got some. It's got some lovely stuff. I mean, I really wish they sort of celebrated that part of their culture a bit more, the history of the of the area a bit more. But you know, it is what it is. Mm. Um, but it wasn't a terrible travel experience. I, you know, I'm, it was just. <laughs> it was just yeah, it was a bit rubbish. Well, we've been all the way around the world now, Jack. I mean, so many incredible destinations and so much fun yeah. getting inspired <laughs> to chatting with you. We are on to the final chapter of your travel diaries. That's chapter seven. And that is the destination that's at the top of your travel bucket list. South America in general. I'm going to go with uh, the whole South America. I have been... Um, sort of attracted to everything about South American culture. And I know putting it all in one sort of bucket is not the right thing to do, but I grew up in a school with a lot of South American friends from Brazil, from Chile, Argentina. And, and there is a link. There is definitely a tie to all of it. The same way there is a link for all of us Europeans, however different we are. And I've always just been obsessed with the music predominantly, mm -hmm. um, uh, the food, the love of football, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. the friendliness, the warmth of the people. Um, I mean, there are cities that I would prioritize. I've had an incredible desire to go to Buenos Aires. Uh, I have mm -hmm. a huge desire to just go and discover all the music of Brazil. Um, and so, yeah, I think I would just love to do, I would love to sort of do the cliche motorcycle diaries, you know, from south to north and just go to the top and do that. I have, I still can't believe that at the age of 38, I haven't been to South America with so many of my good friends living there or being from there. 
so I'm kind of ashamed of myself, if I'm totally honest, because it's a long way. To, it's a long way away. It is, but and, and I had so many opportunities to do it, uh, but it's quite difficult with a family because it's a long yeah. way away. It's very expensive. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just something I haven't been able, it's one of those places I don't want to go for a week. I don't even want to go for a big trip. It's a big trip. It's like a month. It's like a sort of, let's go for a life changing month trip, South America, if you really want to see it. So I haven't really been able to, to make it happen. But next year, I hope, you know, something even happened through music. Our music is starting to kind of react, especially in Brazil. Um, so I'm hoping that this gives us an excuse to pack our bags and go. Yeah. fantastic oh i hope you make it there that sounds like an epic trip both for you and for your family absolutely i would love wonderful to. jack savaretti thank you so much thank you those so much. were your travel diaries it has been so fun bon voyage i hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you That was Jack Savaretti and his latest single, Dancing Through the Rain, which is taken from Europeana Encore, a special extended edition of his chart-topping album, Europeana. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear more from the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to hit follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. And if you're really enjoying it, I'd be so grateful if you fancied leaving a quick rating or review. If you want to be the first to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait till then, remember there's the first seven seasons to catch up on. That's over 85 episodes to keep you busy there. Don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests are always included in the episode show notes here on your podcast app. And they're also always on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 